I am incredibly proud of the way Ryan has led us in this. And uh, I just told him I can't let him off the stage without us praying together. Can we pray together uh, for this? And I, I want you to remember, church, the gospel is not just a set of ideas. The gospel is spiritual reality that takes root in real problems. Yes, you know this? It takes root in real things of everyday life. And we're going to talk about marriage here in a moment. The gospel takes root in our marriages and redeems them and lifts them up. It takes root in the problem of helping vulnerable kids be protected and have a place. So let's pray. Let's call upon our Father above to do a mighty work among us if you join me in praying. Lord, it's good to hear with the challenge that we face in our region and what you have been doing through members of our body and others at other churches around the region. And we pray that you do more. I pray specifically for those, Lord Jesus, today who have responded to this call and they are stretching themselves and working hard. I pray that you would fill them with rest. I thank you and I love that your word in the book of Hebrews talks about finding rest, not just in ceasing to do work, but finding rest in knowing that we're reconciled to God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. And that we enter into the rest of God when we know that. And so I pray that you would allow your rest to abound in their hearts and in their lives. And I pray that through them you bring rest to these kids the rest of knowing that they're redeemed for all eternity. And I pray that you would protect them. And I pray that we as a church and the churches of this region would rise to the challenge, that we'd hear your calling, and that we would remember that we were vulnerable and lost and alone, and you adopted us into your family. You took us in. And so let us express that reality by caring for those who are vulnerable by taking kids into our homes and saying we will make a safe place for you. And may they be introduced to know your love and to walk in it. So we pray, Lord Jesus, you continue to guide and direct us, to call us into supporting one another, bearing one another's burdens, loving each other well. We thank you that you have placed us here for such a time as this. And we are well pleased to be your hands and feet. Let your power move through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank Ryan again for sharing with us, keeping us updated. Well, as I said, we are turning our attention today to talk about marriage in the book of Proverbs. And if you haven't been with us over the course of the summer, this is what we've been doing. I know some of you are students and you're just getting back, or some of you have been traveling through the summer. So let me just kind of tell you what we've been up to here is when you look at the book of Proverbs, you see that it addresses a lot of important subjects in life, but it repeats itself a number of times. So rather than just start in chapter one and then go to chapter two and so on, sort of chronologically, if you will, what we've been doing is we have been uh, looking at several different sort of important structures in our lives and then asking, well, what does all of Proverbs say about this thing? So we've looked at money. So what does Proverbs say about how we should think about money? We've looked at friendship and how does Proverbs instruct us to be a good friend? What does wisdom look like when it comes to friendship? We looked at enemies. How am I to relate to my enemies as a follower of Jesus? What does wisdom look like in that area? We've looked at work. Uh, so a number of these kind of things that are daily life, for so many of us, and we have turned our attention to that. And so today, we come to ask the question, what does Proverbs tell us wisdom looks like in a marriage? Now, let me just say, some of you are single. Let me just encourage you, Proverbs has something to say to you today. Uh, some of you are single again. You've been through maybe a really rough situation. And I wanna encourage you, Proverbs has something to say to you as well. 
And of course, married couples, Proverbs has something to offer you today as well. So I pray that you will just stick with me all the way to the end. Yes, Proverbs has some challenging words for us of instruction about what wisdom looks like. So let's, let's uh, kind of begin to dig in. You can turn with me to Proverbs chapter 12, and then we're going to go to chapter 31. So here's what we're going to see in our, in our study of Proverbs. There are essentially four pieces of wisdom, four kind of thematic ideas that run through the entire book that sort of define Proverbs' teaching on what it looks like to have a marriage that is God-pleasing and life-giving. Now, do you want a God-pleasing marriage? Yes, I sure hope so. That's the most important part, right? Do you want a life-giving marriage? Yes, absolutely. Everyone said amen to that, right? So in wanting those things, this is what Proverbs instructs us. Now again, Proverbs is not gonna say everything we would ever need to know for marriage, but it does give us some broad strokes of true things that if we will do them, if we will heed the wisdom of these things, they will lead to having a God-honoring and a life-giving marriage. Those four things that we're gonna look at, I'm gonna tell, I'll tell them to you now, and then we'll revisit them. So the first one is choose well. That's number one. If you wanna have a God-honoring, life-giving marriage, choose your spouse well. Number two, it's gonna say be faithful. Be faithful. The third thing it's gonna tell us is that we should learn to honor our spouse. And that's not gonna mean exactly what you think it means. I'm gonna unpack that for you when we get there. But honor your spouse. And the, third, the fourth thing is gonna be give grace. Or you might say it in the negative, stop picking fights. Stop picking fights and learn to give grace. Stop being critical and learn to give grace. So those are the four things. We're just gonna move our way through them because they represent sort of the broad teaching of Proverbs as it pertains to marriage. So let's look at the first one. The first thing Proverbs says about having a life-giving, God-honoring marriage is that we would choose well when it comes to our spouse. Now as we go through the book, here's what you're gonna see. Much of the instruction that is given is given to a son by a mother and a father. And they're saying to their son, son, heed our wisdom on this subject. So often it's going to be addressing, like when it says, hey, choose your spouse well, it's going to be speaking to a son. So it's going to be talking about choose this kind of wife. It doesn't mean that Proverbs is only trying to instruct us about the kind of wife a man should look for. But also there is, that is, uh, you can flip that and see much of the kind of husband that a woman should look for. Does that make sense? But we're going to see a lot of instruction to a son. Therefore, we're going to see a lot of instruction about the kind of wife he should be pursuing. Look at Proverbs chapter 12, verse 4. Let's start there. In Proverbs chapter 12, verse 4, it says this. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. That is a strong word. Right, so here's what the proverb is saying. It matters very much who we choose to be our spouse. When it uses this idea of crowning, an excellent wife crowns her husband, what it means to say is that a wife well-chosen, husbands, fills you with strength and joy. Fills you with strength and joy to accomplish the work that God has given you to do. And of course, we can see the same is true in reverse. Ladies, a husband well-chosen fills you with strength and joy. And that's the first thing. But then it goes on to say, it goes on to say, uh, let me pull it back up here. But she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. In other words, a wife well chosen or a husband well chosen brings strength, 
but one not well chosen causes decay from within. It rids us or robs us of strength. It robs us of life and vitality to accomplish the purposes of God. So the first thing we see just from that verse is that it matters very much the spouse that we choose. Now go all the way to the end of Proverbs, chapter 31. And there at the end of the book, we find a description of a godly wife. And again, now here it's not a father speaking to his son, it's a mother. And this son happens to be a king. And she's saying, don't give your strength to all kinds of women. Find an excellent wife and you will find that you will be empowered to be the kind of king that you were meant to be. So here's a mother speaking to her son about a godly wife. Now let's read it together. I just want to read verses 10 all the way to the end of the chapter because it's really rich and really challenging. So here's what it says. Beginning in verse 10. An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. Okay, so what what do you notice right away? This is not an easy thing to find. So when we say choose well, we mean this is not going to be someone you're going to find on every street corner. Yes, do you see that? An excellent wife, who can find? She's far more precious than jewels. Why are jewels precious? Because they're rare. And then he says, the heart of her husband, or she says, sorry, the heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. That's meant to be a quote of the husband to his wife. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands, and let her works praise her in the gates. Now, friends, let me tell you a few pieces of information that help you understand this text because, you know, there's a lot there and it's concentrated. A couple things. One, recognize this is the last chapter of Proverbs. Now, all throughout Proverbs, what's been happening is that wisdom has been portrayed as a woman. It's been, it's been like this metaphor of saying, Wisdom is like a woman who calls out to you and says, you, you should want what I have to offer you. And because wisdom has been portrayed as a woman throughout the book now, we come to the actual embodiment of wisdom in a godly woman, in a godly wife. And it book ends, it, it ends the whole book because what the writer is trying to tell us is, here is the ultimate demonstration of everything we've seen in the first 30 chapters. 
Everything we've seen about wisdom versus foolishness is now embodied in this wife, in this woman, which is why it ends where we began this whole sermon series was the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. And what did it say about this wife at the very end of the chapter? Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who what? Fears the Lord is to be praised. So we see that what the writer is trying to do is trying to say, look, this is the absolute embodiment of wisdom, this kind of a wife. Now, the other thing that you can't see here because uh, you can't see it unless you have the original language is that this is an acrostic. Do you know what an acrostic is? It's like when you write your name down like Trent and you go T is for tremendous and R is for whatever, right? (laughs) It's the best I could come up with. It wasn't written down, all right? I mean, I'm not going to bash myself. T is for terrible or, you know, something like that. You know, so that's an acrostic, right? This whole thing is an acrostic of the Hebrew alphabet. So the first line begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and the last line is the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And it describes this woman, and it's like saying, A, A is for this, and B, B is for this, and C, C is for this. In other words, what the writer's trying to tell us is not just this neat little poetic device. What he's trying to say is this. This woman is the embodiment of wisdom from A to Z. From beginning to end, she embodies all that wisdom is. So listen up. Everything you've seen in the first 30 chapters, you're going to have embodied now here. Now, that being the case, okay, we are looking specifically at some things about a godly wife. But so many of these things, would you say they would also mark a godly husband? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because they're a distillation or a a summary of everything we've seen in the first 30 chapters. And in those first 30 chapters, more often than not, they weren't addressed to a godly wife. They were addressed to a godly man. Be industrious. Be caring for the vulnerable and the poor. All the things we've seen here are portrayed there in those first 30 chapters. So it's been said, or I've heard it said, that gentlemen, if you want a Proverbs 31 woman, then you better be a Proverbs 1 to 30 kind of man. So it's not as if the Proverbs are just saying, well, here's a godly woman and we're just gonna leave out the men because it doesn't matter. They've been dealing with us the first 30 chapters and with all of us throughout the entire book. So that's what I want you to see is that this is really a rich, rich description of this godly spouse, in particular, a godly wife. Now, of course, the idea is that we have to choose well and wisely if we're gonna have a God-honoring marriage. So when we read this, if I'm a man, I'm supposed to read this and go, this is the kind of wife I should look for. If I'm a woman, I'm supposed to read this and I'm gonna say, this is the kind of woman I should try to be, I should want to be this, right? And the same thing then in reverse when we think about chapters one through 30, but the kind of godly man that I should want to be, and ladies, the kind of man that you should look for in a husband. We could spend our whole time examining, we could literally just spend the whole sermon on this right here. Right, but I want to move to some other things. So I just want to point out one example of a great um, expression of godliness in this text. Because there, there's so many. And there's things like, you know, she doesn't just trust in her appearances. Right? Charm is deceiving. Beauty is, uh, beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. But look with me. Verses 15 through 17. What I love about this is that this woman, have you, not- have you noticed how strong this woman is? It said her arms are strong and she's entrepreneurial. She sees a field, she buys it, she trades with merchants, she understands the value of what she has. She goes out and she is caring for the needs of her, for her, of her family by identifying ways to not just be industrious but to bring an income into the household. And so she's doing these really wise things for her family. And because, 
Because of that, here's what it says in verse 15 through 17. It says, she rises, it's yet night, and provides food for her household, portions for her maidens. I don't know if any of you have maidens in your household anymore. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes, herself, makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. So you see that industriousness, yes? Her diligence and her care for her household. But then look at what it says. I love the results of that in verse 21 now. The result of all that diligence and all that godliness is this. She is not afraid of snow for her household. For all her household are clothed in scarlet. In other words, her diligence has driven fear out of her heart because she has well prepared her home for hard times. She has prepared her home for the cold days. But then go down to verse 25. Strength and dignity are her clothing. Strength and dignity are her clothing. And she laughs at the time to come. Do you know what it means when it says, and she laughs at the time to come? It means she's not afraid of the future. She's not anxious. She's not filled with anxiety. Why? Because she knows the Lord, and she knows she's his. And she walks with him. And so fear has been driven out by the love of the Lord in her and by her diligence. In fact, the end says, all you need to do to honor this woman is just give her the fruit of her own labors. You give her the fruit of her own labors, she's good because that's how good she is. She's produced so much fruit and so much goodness, you don't even have to add benefit to that. If you just give her that, it will be a rich reward. But what I love about that is this. As I think about it as a husband, now I'm reading this from the perspective of a man, right? And I'm thinking, God has called us men he has called us. The, the world is a dark place. It's filled with sin and it is fear-inducing, but he's called us to be courageous. And ladies, no less, but just thinking for a moment from the perspective of a husband and a man, I think about how often I wonder if I have what it takes to encounter the darkness of the world and bring light into dark places. I think about how often I feel I lack the courage to do the hard thing that I know I must do to represent the king of kings in this world. I think about how daunting that can be. And do you know what strips me of fear and fills me with faith? Is having a wife who is not filled with fear, but who has cared well for our home and now fills me as her husband with courage. Fills me with courage because she's filled with courage because of all her diligence and because of all her godliness. Do you see what I'm getting at? What a benefit it is to have a godly spouse. And by the way, I hope and pray that works in reverse, that I might bring courage to my spouse as a husband. But what a joy and a blessing it is to choose well. Now look, I know that like, particularly if you're single and you're young, you hear sermons on this kind of stuff and you kind of hear a mixed bag, right? You hear like, look, you don't have to have this laundry list of stuff. You just need to marry someone who loves the Lord, right? But then you hear me say, well, choose well, which is kind of like saying, be picky, right? You're like, well, which is it, right? And the answer is kind of both because here's the deal. What Proverbs is saying is it's not saying have this laundry list of, well, that they need to have this color hair and that kind of job and be this smart and, be, and make me laugh. And, you know, it's not pointing at all those things. Those aren't bad things, but it's not pointing at those things. It's pointing at don't settle for less than someone that's on a trajectory to this kind of godliness in their life. And can I just say that some of you who are young, some of you who are single, you're dating people who don't even share your own faith in Jesus Christ. It's a, it is not a road to wisdom. It is not a road to wisdom. Let me tell you. Let me tell you. Now look, 
we're gonna, we're gonna point to the redeeming work of Christ in any of these situations because he redeems, he does amazing things. He does amazing things. I have a dear friend who is, uh, who is older than I am. In fact, their, their daughter was my age and we were close friends in high school. And when she was young, she was a believer but not walking with the Lord that closely and she married a man who was not a believer and she looks back at that and she recognizes, man, that was not a great choice. But do you know what God has done? He's redeemed it so magnificently. She and her husband do missions work together. They walk with the Lord. He is one of the godliest men I've ever known but she recognized that she disobeyed the command of the Lord when she married him. Now, God has redeemed that, but that's not the same as saying that was a wise choice in the moment. Do you understand that? The first thing Proverbs is trying to tell us is choose well. Choose well. My friends, if you're in a relationship with someone that does not know the Lord, your call is not to date them into a relationship with Jesus. That's not your call. You get out of the relationship by all means, be their friend if that's possible. It's not your call. Your call is to choose well. And choosing well means choosing a, someone that's on the trajectory to being this kind of spouse. And you can't be this kind of spouse if you don't love Jesus. The second thing that encompasses, oh wait, before we move on there, let me give you a point of application. Because I love at the end that the husband and the children call this woman what? blessed and they praise her and the husband says many women have done excellently but you have exceeded them all can I just take a moment and say there the Proverbs are calling us to praise our spouses liberally just just pray get creative about all the ways that you could possibly ever praise your spouse and don't shut your mouth open it up and praise them praise them give them affirmation after affirmation seek every opportunity do you know why one, it affirms that you made a great choice and you can feel pretty smart about that when you praise your spouse. It's awesome. But do you know what else it does? It reminds you what a good thing you've got. Reminds you what a good thing you've got. When you, because when you're praising them, you're reminding yourself what a good thing you have. Keep praising your spouse. Don't stop. Get creative. Like I said, just get creative about how many ways can you affirm and encourage them. The second thing and it speaks to that very reality of remembering what we have, is the scriptures call us to be faithful. That's what we said the second piece of Proverbs wisdom is, is be faithful. Now here's why, before we even get into the text here, here's why. Your marriage and my marriage, if we're married, right? Your marriage is a placeholder that it will exist in this span of life, but will no longer exist on the other side of death. Because when you die, if you're in Christ, you as a, as a part of his church are his what? His bride, which means that you are married to him. So your marriage today is meant to be a reflection of your true and better marriage, which is yet to come. That's why we're not married, Jesus said, in the new heaven and the new earth. When Jesus redeems all things, we will no longer be married to our spouses. That seems weird, doesn't it? This most important of all earthly relationships seems weird that that is foregone in the kingdom. And the reason is it's because we're married to our true spouse and he's enough for us. And the reason to be faithful to your spouse, the biggest reason that you must be faithful to your spouse is not for your own benefit, it's not for your own blessing, it's because your marriage exists as a placeholder to point to your true marriage and to point other people to it as well. And has our true spouse always been faithful to us, even when we haven't been faithful to him? 
Oh, yes, he has been, and he always will be, never unfaithful. And so our faithfulness is a call from the king on high to demonstrate to the world what his faithfulness is like. That's why we're faithful to our spouses, not because we find them to be the most beautiful person in the world, not because they're the most lovely, not because they're the boldest or the strongest or the bravest or the most intelligent, not because they continue to wow us and woo us. We are faithful because he is faithful. You with me, church? If you don't get that, nothing else I say is gonna matter. We are faithful because he is faithful. Now look with me. Here's the thing. This is a hard subject. It's the subject of adultery. And Proverbs spends more time on this as it relates to marriage than any other subject related to marriage. Did you know that? We find it in chapter two. We find it covers the entire of chapter, entirety of chapter five. It covers half of chapter six and all of chapter seven. In other words, this father instructing his son wants him to understand how real the danger of temptation to adultery is and he wants to instruct him, son, be faithful. And he wants to give him wisdom to help him be faithful. So that's what we're gonna look at here now is wisdom from this father, from the very word of God to help us be faithful in our marriages, husbands and wives. That's what Proverbs wants to give us. Let me read to you a very vivid chapter, chapter seven. So flip with me there if you got your Bibles. Proverbs chapter seven. And we're gonna look a little in chapter five too, but just for now, I just wanna read you chapter seven in its entirety, because here's the picture. It's as if a father has taken his son and he said, son, come here, come here. Come and sit with me, I wanna show you something. And he's gonna, he's gonna unpack a story for his son. He's gonna come sit, come sit with me at this window and I want you to tell me what you see. Let's look together. And here's what we find. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call insight your intimate friend. To keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. For at the window of my house, I have looked out through my lattice and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense. Passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house, in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon he will come home. With much seductive speech she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast, till an arrow pierces its liver, 
as a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. It's a sobering picture, isn't it? This father's instructing his son, and he wants him to remember a few things, and he's painted a really vivid image. And he's done so on purpose because he wants his son to understand. The first thing he wants his son to understand is this. He says, in order to avoid the temptation of adultery, you have to remember, son, that adultery always leads to destruction. Adultery always leads to destruction. The end is the same every time. No matter how appealing it may seem, no matter how good it may, may appear. And there's a couple things you need to recognize here. Did you notice that the words of this person who was trying to tempt this other young man into an adulterous relationship, did you notice how seductive her words were? In Proverbs chapter five, it says that her words, her lips drip with honey and her mouth is filled as if with oil. In other words, the idea is that there's a sweetness to it. And what we found even in chapter seven is that she even plays the religious card, the spirituality card. And she says, I've just paid my vows. I've just come from making sacrifices. And in other words, she's probably part of a Canaanite uh, cult that worships through sexuality. And so she's saying, in order to complete my worship to God, I have to have intimacy with you. So come, come, I've made myself ready and I've made my bed ready. She's even playing on the idea of spirituality there. For us, it might not look like that, but it might look like this. But we're soulmates. We have a connection. We have a connection our spouse has never given to us. The person who would tempt into adultery will often try to appear as if they're in the right and that they are the best thing for you. But my friend, that person's way, whether it be a woman or a man, in whichever direction, that way leads to destruction, not to life. Like an ox to the what, church? To the slaughter. Like an ox to the slaughter. He doesn't know that he goes to his own death. The next thing we see, flip back to chapter five, because I want you to see this. In chapter five, because he wants us to understand how great the destruction is that comes with adultery, this father, talking to his son, says that the destruction that comes with adultery is social, it's economic, and it's physical. So look, in, in verse nine of chapter five, he says, don't give in to her ways, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Okay, what does it mean to give your honor to others? It means to take your standing and lower it socially. So he's saying you will pay a price socially for this choice, son. You will be dishonored rather than honored. Then he goes to verse 10. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. What does it mean for your labors to go to someone else's house? It means the gain, the benefit, the economic gain from what you have worked for now will go to someone else. You will suffer economically for this choice, son. Then he says, verse 11, and at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. 
He's saying not only will the consequences be social, not only the economic, they'll also be physical. At the end of your life, you will groan because of this choice that you have made. The consequences of adultery are destruction every time. And he's trying to warn us. Do you hear the warning? He's trying to warn us. The second thing he gives his son to try and help him move away from this temptation is he says, don't even put yourself in a position to be tempted. Look at verse eight of chapter five. He says, keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. What's a door? It's the entryway into the house, right? He's saying, don't even go in the door. He's not, he's saying, you know, he's not saying don't go into the bedroom. He's saying, stay, stay away from the door. Don't even go near it. Get as far clear from her as you possibly can. Don't flirt with her. Don't talk to her. If you're at work and you recognize that somebody is being flirtatious with you and wants a kind of inappropriate interaction with you, you get away from that person. Don't mess with them at all. Get away from the door of her house. It only leads to destruction. And so he's just saying super practically to the son, don't even begin to imagine. Don't let your mind run into this. Gentlemen, this this absolutely pertains not just when we're married, it pertains to what we set our eyes on before we're married. When we set our eyes on other women before we're married, and don't, guard our, don't guard our eyes to reserve them for our one-day spouse. When we do that, we are exposing ourselves to temptation towards adultery in the future. Don't go near the door of her house. Don't give in in any way. Don't even give a hint of impropriety. The third thing he, this father says to this son, he says, don't ignore wise counsel. Have wise counsel in your life. He says that at the beginning, we saw it at the beginning of chapter seven, we see it at the beginning of chapter five as well, and I just read to you the part when he's made this mistake, he's gonna say, oh, how I hated discipline and I despised reproof. In other words, I didn't listen to my mom and my dad. I didn't listen to wise counsel around me. Can I tell you this? If there's any portion of a relationship, any portion of your relationship with any member of the opposite sex that you have which you keep hidden from godly friends, something's wrong. If there's any portion of any relationship with a member of the opposite sex that you cannot readily say, oh yes, we had this kind of conversation, or oh yes, we went here and did this thing. Any portion of your relationship with a member of the opposite sex that you would not readily put in front of your spouse and readily put in front of godly counsel, if you wouldn't come sit in my office and readily tell me, oh yeah, this something's wrong something is wrong the last guard and I want to speak with discretion here the last guard that this father tells this son about is he says look you want to be guarded from adultery have a great sex life with your wife have a great sex life with your wife look at chapter 5 again look at verse 15 through 19 where he says this, he says, drink water from your own cistern. Now water here is gonna be a metaphor for sexual intimacy. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe, Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. 
Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? So as I said, water here is a metaphor for sexual intimacy. Now, can we do this? Let's say this. When we speak as believers about sexuality and about sex, we never speak lewdly. We never speak crassly. Right? We always speak with modesty, but we also need to rid ourselves of this prudish notion that somehow Christians don't talk about sex because the Bible is unashamedly ready to talk about sex. And it's ready to talk about it as not just for procreative purposes, but for the purposes of pleasure, that it's something we're to enjoy. Did this sound like these people were engaging in sexuality for the sake of just procreation? It sounded like there was a pleasure in it for them that helped guard them from adultery, from wanting something outside of their marriage. And so he's quick to talk about it. And this father is painting a very vivid picture for his son. And he's saying, I want you to delight and rejoice and enjoy this expression of love with your spouse. Here's another way to translate it, okay, that kind of gets down to the brass tacks of it. Another way to translate this verse is, may she be, speaking about this man's wife, may she be a love-making doe, a graceful mountain goat. That one's weird, I don't get that. <laughs> a graceful mountain goat. Now get how, get how vivid this is. May her breasts drench you at all times. And with her caresses, may you always become intoxicated. Now, let's say a couple of very obvious things there. You don't get intoxicated on one glass of wine. You get intoxicated on a lot of glasses of wine. So the idea there, of course, is that the father is saying, may this be regularly partaken of. May this be something that is actively participated in and enjoyed by both of you on a regular basis. May you be drenched in it. May you be intoxicated with it. He's saying, may you enjoy the form of your wife. May you love her appearance and find yourself saturated in her beauty constantly. So, you know, you have homework today. I told her, both services, I'm sweating while I'm talking about this. It should, I don't know why. But, I mean, look, here's the practicality, right? This is the practicality of Proverbs that's on display. It's just... It's so exceedingly practical. It's like saying, look, you don't want to commit adultery because it leads to destruction. So you know what you need to do? You need to have great sex with your spouse. You need to regularly be enjoying sex together. You need to be intimate with one another. You need to be in conversation about it. There needs to be this regularity of this practice that you would learn to enjoy. Because if you are delighting and enjoying in the wife of your youth son, you won't go looking elsewhere. When I was younger I, and did a lot of youth ministry, I taught sex education in public schools, which is a really interesting endeavor. But we'd use this metaphor as an abstinence-based program, and we'd use this metaphor of fire. You know, when you put fire in a fireplace, it brings what? Heat, warmth, light into the house. It really produces a lot of good, doesn't it? You can cook food over it. You know, you can have a nice s'more, right? You can, you can enjoy. It's this great thing when fire's in the fireplace. If you take that same fire in the fireplace and you put it in the middle of your living room, it's gonna cause a lot of problems. It is destructive beyond measure when that fire is put in the wrong place. And that's exactly what the Proverbs are trying to teach us about sex. It's saying sex is great and enjoyable and to be delighted in, in your marriage. And when you do that, it will bring light and warmth and joy and peace to your household. When you take that and you put it somewhere else, it's going to destroy you. That's what Proverbs is trying to teach us.
Let's go to the third thing that's advice about marriage here. And the third thing we said was to honor your spouse. And I said, I mean something a little different here than what you might think I mean. Because when we say honor your spouse, you know, you hear, you know, speak words of affirmation to them. And we talked about that just a minute ago, and that's good. But the Proverbs actually mean something different when they talk to us about honoring our spouse as a way to have a God-honoring and life-giving marriage. Look back at chapter 12, verse 4 again with me. Here's what it says. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. Now the same idea again, chapter 31, verse 23. We'll put it on the screen here. Talking about the husband of this godly wife, this godly woman. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. Now what you might hear there is that this godly woman has married a really godly man, and that's true, right? But really what Proverbs is trying to get through to us, it's not just that, oh, she made a really good choice in her husband because he's an elder and he's respected in the gates and he's a man of integrity. No, what it's trying to tell us is that she is such a woman of godliness that, that it reflects well upon him, so much so that he's honored in the gates. He's considered one of the elders in the land because of how godly this wife is. So when I say honor your spouse, what I mean is this. When you pursue godly character and integrity like this woman in Proverbs 31, it reflects so well on your spouse that it brings honor to them. And we are to seek to honor our spouses by being men and women who are godly. And haven't you seen that? Look, if you have a godly spouse, haven't you seen how you've benefited just because of their reputation? Have you experienced that? Their reputation alone is enough to cause people to go, well, he must be all right if you married her. Can I tell you how this has played out in my life? I'm your pastor because my wife is godly. Because here's what happened. I interviewed for the first time uh, for this role, and I thought, man, this church seems unique. It seems awesome. I'd love to be there. And I bombed the first interview. I mean, C plus at best. I went home, and I told my wife. It was a Skype interview. I was down in Texas. You know, they're up here. And I told my wife, man, I don't It's Just I'm not counting on ever hearing from them again, other than to say thanks, but no thanks. Right, that's literally, what she can tell tell you, that's exactly what I said, C plus at best. By some miracle, the search team, maybe they lacked good candidates, I don't know, they called me back and they said, hey, we wanna fly you up and we'll do another interview. And I'm thinking like, whoa, it's amazing, I got another interview. And I'm no dummy, do you know what I said? Can I bring my wife? Sure, you probably need her there to help you discern. I was like, oh no, no, I wanna like sit in the interviews with me. And they were like, oh yeah, that's great, bring it. And I'm your pastor today. (laughs) Because I'm no dummy. Because a godly spouse, right? You can C plus interview, but wait, he got her? There's more here than meets the eye. I'm telling you, that's how it works, man. Choose well. Choose well. Honor your spouse by being of godly character and it will reflect well upon them. Wives, your husband is respected and honored in the gates of the land when you are godly. Husbands, your wives are held in high esteem when you are a godly man. You follow? All right, good. Let's go to the last one. The last one said positively is give grace. Learn to give grace. Put negatively, stop picking fights. Stop picking fights. Look at what this verse says. Proverbs 21, verse nine. says, it's better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Now, 
You might think, well, that's like a one-off verse. Do you know that that verse is, occurs three times in Proverbs? That exact verse. And there are one or two other times where the same idea is conveyed, just with different language. So in other words, other than the stuff on adultery, this is the most common instruction as it pertains to, to marriage in Proverbs. In other words, what the, what the dad is saying is like, it would be better for you to live on the rooftop exposed to the elements, and not even on the rooftop, and a corner of the rooftop, than to go down into that house with that woman. Because she loves to pick a fight. Because she is quarrelsome, contentious, always looking to pick faults, find a little thing and just say, you didn't do this right, and critique this, and criticize that. And brothers, can I just tell you, this is not just women who do this, because I've met some critical dudes out there. And here's the sad part, right? This is what it's saying. Stop picking fights. Let love cover a multitude of sins. Do you remember, for those of you who've been married a while, do you remember in the first year of your marriage how many fights you had about all the little idiosyncrasies of your spouse and the things like, you're not doing this and you put the toothpaste away wrong and, you know, and like the toilet paper's supposed to go over, not under. It is supposed to go over, not under, all right? Like, <laughs> okay. I got some, some over team people. That's great. I'm glad. I'm glad. And you pick fights about that, and then like five years into your marriage, hopefully earlier, hopefully you're not dumb, and earlier you, fit, you figured out like, why would I ever pick a fight over that? That is not smart. Let it go. It doesn't matter. Stop criticizing. Stop looking for reason. Look, here's the deal. Some of you, some of you are criticizing because you want to control your spouse. Some of you are critical because you want to control your spouse and shape them into who you think they need to be. And I just tell you, you are aiming at the wrong thing. You should not be trying to control your spouse. You should be trying to serve your spouse and cultivate a loving intimacy between the two of you. So you might be aiming at the wrong thing. Control is not the right aim. But some of you are aiming at loving and caring and peace. Some of you are aiming at that, but you're, you think the vehicle is critique somehow, is criticism to get everything lined up and in order. And can I just tell you, your house will never be a house of peace as long as your voice is a voice of criticism. Learn to be gracious. Give grace. Give grace when things aren't just as you think they should be. Give grace when a mistake is made. Learn to ask this question. Learn to ask this question. Does my spouse need me to point out the error that they've just made because they somehow don't see it and are in danger of repeating it? Most of the time the answer is what? No. Most of the time when we make a mistake, we're aware we made it and we really don't want to do it again. So our spouse heaping on and saying, you're an idiot for doing that. I can't believe you did that. Does that help the matter at all? No. It only makes us feel shame. It only pushes us farther apart. It doesn't bring intimacy. How about if we gave grace in that moment and said, man, I've made that mistake too, honey. And I love you. And it's okay. How can we fix it together? How much better would that be? Proverbs is trying to tell us, like, give grace. Don't pick fights. Don't be quarrelsome. Don't be the person who is so dead set on your way in every corner of your home that your spouse feels constantly nitpicked. It's an important lesson to learn. It's an important one. I, I continue to ask God to teach me this lesson. So those are the four pieces of wisdom that mark Proverbs teaching on marriage. Here's what I want you to understand. I've been holding this to the end. 
even as I say all these things, some of you have not followed these pieces of wisdom. Some of you didn't follow it in the choice you made for a spouse. Some of you have succumbed to the temptation to adultery. Some of you have been wounded by a spouse who has succumbed to the temptation to adultery. Some of you are filled with criticism and not giving grace. It is never too late to begin to practice godly wisdom in your marriage. Number one, I want you to hear that. It's never too late to stop criticizing and start giving grace. But even if you have, you have committed sin that you can't undo, what I want you to know is there is no marriage beyond the redeeming power of Jesus Christ. There is no marriage beyond the redeeming power of Jesus Christ. If you have committed adultery, if you are right now in the throes of temptation towards adultery and you know you have an inappropriate relationship with another woman or man, and you know it's just around the corner if you don't do something, you are not beyond the redeeming power of God's spirit to draw you back and to take what you have broken and to make it whole again. He can do it. He has done it. Many of our folks would testify to it. They've watched him do it. Don't believe for one second that your marriage is a lost cause. Jesus and the power of his cross and the power of his resurrection, if he can be resurrected from the grave, he can resurrect a marriage from the grave. His grace is powerful. His kindness will lead you to repentance if you will listen to him and obey him. He can redeem your spouse and draw them into his kingdom. He can, don't leave your marriage because you chose to marry someone who wasn't a believer. Draw them through your graciousness and kindness and through your humility, draw them to the King of kings and Lord of lords. Continue to pray day and night and ask him to redeem your spouse. Don't give up on your marriage. You seek the redeeming power of Jesus in your marriage because nothing is beyond that power. Somebody say amen to that. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we love you. Oh, how we love you. And we need you. We need you to strengthen us. We need you to teach us wisdom. We know we have gone astray. We know it points, numerous points. We have chosen the opposite of wisdom. We've chosen foolishness. And so we need you. We ask you to come and fill us and strengthen us and fill us with joy. We want so much to have marriages, whether they be future marriages for those of us who are single or marriages for those of us now in the present who are married. We want so much to have marriages uh, when you call us into them that are pleasing to you, that honor you, and that bring joy into our life and fullness into our life. So we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, you do it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.